Addiction touches families in every community, in red states and blue states, across all races and creeds. The crisis is national, but the struggle is personal, deeply personal. It's personal to me and my family, to millions more who confront it every single day. Most of all, it's personal to families who have lost a son, a daughter, a sister, a brother, a parent, or a friend to addiction. On this episode of Outside Counsel, we explore why we have an opioid epidemic. Well, we know why. It's because of the oversupply of opioid drugs. We explore why we have an oversupply of opioid drugs. It's because of the overprescribing of opioid drugs. And we explore why we have an overprescribing of opioid drugs. And it's because of a big promotional lie from drug companies trying to sell opioids, specifically that the best and safest method for treating pain is to prescribe opioids. I am Jeffrey B. Simon, and this is Outside Counsel. People have heard and read a lot about the opioid epidemic, but what we're gonna talk about is firstly, what is an opioid? What is a prescription opioid? Do we have an opioid epidemic? And if so, what does that mean? And how did we get here? What is the history of the opioid epidemic? Is it better or worse now than it was years ago? What does the future hold with respect to this epidemic? Well, the answer to the last question is going to be, that depends on us. And so the point of this season, and in some respects, this episode, is to address those questions. How did we get here and what do we do now? This is the largest drug-related public health crisis in American history. And there are two essential things to know about it. One is it was created by industry. And two, it was 100% preventable. An opioid is a molecule that binds to the opioid receptors in our brain and central nervous system. A prescription opioid is a controlled substance prescribed for pain. The reason we have an opioid epidemic is because too many opioids were prescribed and then supplied for too many years, causing too much addiction, too many overdoses, and too many destroyed lives and families. To understand how big this problem is, consider this. Last year, 70,000 Americans died of accidental overdoses on opioids. That is the same thing in terms of the death toll as if a 737 full of passengers and crew crashed and killed everyone on board every single day. Most public health experts interested in the topic determined that by 2006, we had a public health crisis associated with a glut of prescription opioids. In 2011, the Centers for Disease Control declared that we have a national emergency associated with the glut of prescription opioids in America. 
in 2017, then President Donald Trump formally announced that we are in the midst of a national emergency as a result of the opioid epidemic. I am directing all executive agencies to use every appropriate emergency authority to fight the opioid crisis. Everyone who's intellectually honest enough and informed enough acknowledges that the cause of the opioid epidemic was an oversupply of prescription opioids. Opinions differ depending on what their interest is in the topic as to why we had that oversupply. We also have had a significant increase in heroin use in the last 10 years. And depending on who you ask, opinions differ as to why. The best health and science, the best evidence on the research related to this topic has shown that the now heroin epidemic that we are experiencing and the related fentanyl epidemic that we are experiencing is as a result of years of the oversupply of prescription opioids. In fact, there are two statistics that are really important to understand. One is there's a significant amount of published literature which demonstrates that over the last decade, 80% of new heroin users, people who initiate heroin use for the first time in their lives, are former prescription opioid overusers. Moreover, the Center for Disease Control has determined that the strongest risk factor for new heroin use is whether there is previous prescription opioid abuse. When we use the word abuse, we need to be careful because people have in their mind the idea that abuse implies the worst in human behavior. When in fact, the way that most opioids are quote unquote abused is really easy to understand. Husband throws his back out moving a piece of furniture. Wife who has extra hydrocodone because she received more than she needed from a root canal, gives him that hydrocodone in order to ease his pain. Now, of course, she shouldn't do that. It's not his prescription, but it's easy to understand why she would want to ease his pain. He then begins taking too much of the hydrocodone because that is the nature of an addictive drug. He then develops a dependency and an addiction on that hydrocodone. That happens all the time in America. And that's one of the most common types of abuse. Similarly, imagine an elderly woman with osteoarthritis. She is prescribed a 90-day supply of oxycodone to take when she feels pain. Her 12-year-old grandson is looking in the medicine cabinet either to be curious or for aspirin, and sees the oxycodone. Out of curiosity, he takes one of the oxycodone pills and experiences euphoria from it. He then takes six or eight of them out of that bottle, there being 90, she won't miss them, and takes them to his friends. And five or six of them in a treehouse all take oxycodone. That's abuse but we wouldn't really call any of them criminals, not if we're being reasonable about it. 
And that is among the most common forms of abuse. And that kind of abuse is significantly increasing the risk of later heroin use, according to an abundance of medical literature on the topic. Opium came to the United States largely from people traveling from the Far East in the late 18th century. In the 19th century, morphine was successfully synthesized from opium. Here in the United States, morphine was used widely for the first time to treat the pain from battle injuries in the Civil War. That morphine proved to be highly addictive. While it would temporarily block pain, it caused many soldiers to develop an addiction to morphine. Interestingly, the Bayer Company, a German drug company, then developed a drug called heroin, which was to be sold by prescription and was sold by prescription in the United States, both in the late 1800s and through the early part of the 1900s. And the Bayer Company promoted heroin as a non-addictive form of morphine. In other words, it provided, they claimed, the same pain-relieving effects without causing addiction. But of course, heroin is addictive. Morphine is addictive. All opiate derivatives, which block pain, are also addictive. There was enough overuse of heroin and morphine that in 1914, Congress passed the Harrison Narcotics Act, making the prescribing of heroin or its possession illegal. And so that is the first federal law which illegalized opiates. Now, after that time, other opiate drugs were developed and sold, again, being promoted as non-addictive forms of opiates. We saw that with drugs like Percocet and Percodan in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. Stanley Mosk, who was the attorney general of the state of California in the 1960s, actually believed there were thousands, tens of thousands of Californians who were addicted in the 1960s. Now, whether that statistic is valid or not, I mean only to say that we had this narrative that had happened in history over and over. Here is all the strong pain relief that is available from opiates, and here is that form of an opiate, which is not addictive, which has never been true. So what happened is that in the 1980s, there was a movement, a well-intentioned movement in the pain management community that people who were in terrible pain from terrible illnesses were being insufficiently treated for their pain out of fears of addiction. One of the problems in treating people who were in intractable pain, say bone cancer that it was highly metastasized was, it seemed appropriate in a medically monitored setting to give them access to morphine, for example, 
where the fear of addiction was less important than simply treating them humanely, managing their pain in the last days of their lives. But morphine was administered in that era only by intravenous infusion, which required people who were being treated for this intractable pain in the last days of their life, often to be in the hospital when they'd rather be home with their families. The concept that Knapp developed was, what if you could provide morphine orally? What if we could develop an oral form of morphine, which bled into the bloodstream gradually in the way that a morphine drip would, but didn't require the morphine drip? And so what they developed was an acrylic coating on a morphine-based pill, and they called it MS-Cotton, morphine sulfate, cotton being short for continuous. And the concept was a person could take that drug and morphine would gradually leach into the blood system and the person's pain would be controlled. It was a good idea for what it was. But again, it was still consistent with the very limited basis upon which opioids had been prescribed for years. Since 1914, up until the 1980s, there was a long-standing understanding in the medical and scientific community that opioids were highly potent and only appropriate for very narrow therapeutic reasons. Why? Because they're highly addictive and because they're too easy to overdose on. And so the understanding for decades was that opioids should only be prescribed for the following things. Intractable pain near end of life in a highly medically monitored setting, which is what a person in a last illness would normally be receiving by way of care. Or for very short-term use for acute trauma, like post-surgery for a few days in a hospital setting. Or how to get the ski boot off my broken leg. And so the concept was is that opioids should only be provided for acute injury to manage pain for short-term in closely monitored settings or for end-of-life care associated with intractable pain. What MS Cotton offered was a way to treat people who needed pain management near end-of-life in a setting outside the hospital. Why was that very important? Because once we developed opioids that were to be taken longer term on an outpatient basis, instead of in a medically monitored situation, then we were creating an opportunity for the addictive propensities of the drug to take over without being scrutinized in a closely medical monitored setting. MS Cotton became a gold standard in the 1980s for treating end-of-life pain. At the same time, 
in the 1980s and the early 90s. There was a movement that said there are other kinds of chronic pain that cause great interruption in people's lives, cause terrible emotional torment that are being undertreated. And with that idea, the Purdue Frederick Company said that it could expand upon this concern being expressed by certain physicians in the pain management community that chronic pain, even if it was not the result of last illness, should be better treated. It should be better managed. And so they developed the idea of a drug that had this sustained release, just like MS Cotton, but for chronic pain to be taken on an outpatient basis for things that are not end-of-life intractable pain. And they developed a drug called OxyContin, which instead of MS-Contin, which is morphine sulfate, is an oxycodone-based drug. And so they put the acrylic coating on oxycodone, and it became OxyContin. And the whole premise of OxyContin was you could put a higher dose of opioid in the drug than could otherwise be obtained in the market and that the sustained release feature of the drug would not only provide pain relief for longer periods of time throughout the day, but further was less addictive. It's well documented that the Purdue Frederick Company, Purdue Pharma, which was actually who marketed OxyContin, knew that the pill did not exactly, well, not even at all, provide the promised 12 hours of pain relief. Now you have a problem. You have a problem because number one, opioids don't cure pain and they don't treat any illness. All they do is numb pain for a while. So if you're taking a high dose opioid that's supposed to block pain or at least significantly reduce it for 12 hours, but it only works for six, eight. Then that patient is back in pain. Then what? Then they need more opioids. And when you increase the amount of opioids that you are taking, you significantly increase the likelihood of addiction and the likelihood of overdose. And unfortunately, very quickly, OxyContin became one of the most abused drugs in America. Purdue Pharma developed a marketing campaign that was enormously successful, making it a blockbuster drug that is a billion dollar drug within five years of its release. They first began selling the drug in approximately December of 1995. And by 2001, the revenue generated from OxyContin was a billion dollars a year. Very quickly, other drug companies decided if you can't beat them, join them, and began engaging in the same kind of aggressive marketing of their opioid drugs. The opioid epidemic was caused first and foremost by aggressive drug company marketing 
of a dangerous lie. That the best and safest method for treating chronic pain was to prescribe opioids. The reality is, is those claims are not true. They've never been true. Addicting patients is no way to relieve their pain. Neither is killing them. The most destructive but effective lie that drug companies spread to promote the big lie was that addiction was rare among people taking opioids for chronic pain, less than 1% they claimed. In truth, opioids are just as addictive as heroin, sometimes more so. Drug companies that manufactured and marketed opioids convinced too many doctors and too many dentists and too many podiatrists that the risk of addiction lies within the patient and not within the opioid drugs themselves. And that doctors could effectively screen out patients who stood at greater risk for developing addiction from opioids to be prescribed to them. That too was a lie utilized to give doctors a false sense of security in expanding the prescribing of opioids. In truth, exposure to opioids, the dosages and durations of use are and have always been the two biggest risk factors in causing opioid addiction in anyone. By offering free samples of these highly addictive drugs, opioid drug companies created customers in the form of opioid dependent patients and then kept them coming back with coupons for more opioids at discounted prices. Drug companies successfully changed the curriculums in medical schools and continuing medical education programs to teach medical students and doctors that the fear of addiction in prescribing opioids, a marketing term they called opioid phobia as if it were an actual medical condition, which it never was, was an unwarranted barrier to alleviating a patient's pain. Doctors were taught there was no such thing as a ceiling dose or a maximum dose of opioids for a patient in pain. That a patient on high dose opioids who still complains of pain needs more opioids rather than different therapy. The result of this miseducation was disastrous and drug companies knew all of this while they were continuing to promote these falsehoods. Then exploiting the power and long durability of the big lie that opioid addiction was rare and people taking the drugs for chronic pain and that the best and safest method for treating pain was to prescribe opioids. Generic opioid manufacturers swept into the marketplace with lower prices for these addictive drugs. In doing so, they expanded market supply and perpetuated the crisis. Increased opioid access through lower prices caused more addiction as more people became first exposed and then enslaved by the need to alleviate dope sickness for one more desperate day. The good news is there's hope. When we talk about opioid abuse as the public health problem that it is, more people will seek the help that they need. More people will find the strength to recover, just like Macklemore and millions of Americans have. We'll see fewer preventable deaths and fewer broken families. We have to tell people who need help that it's okay to ask for it. We've got to make sure they know where to get it. We all have a role to play. Even if we haven't fought this battle in our own lives, 
there's a good chance we know someone who has or who is. Many experts trace the birth of the modern opioid epidemic to the year 1980, when a letter to the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine was written by two healthcare professionals, Porter and Jick. It's crucial to understand what the Porter and Jick paper was and what it wasn't. It was not a peer-reviewed published paper. It was not a paper that produced data that could be considered by other experts to determine whether or not it was a well-conducted study and whether or not the conclusions follow from the data. It was literally a five-line letter to the editor that said, in short, that they had looked at the medical records of approximately 11,000 patients at a Boston area hospital to determine which of them had been prescribed opioids according to their medical records, and of those, how many became addicted. And according to their findings, of the approximately 11,000 patients whose medical records they looked at who had been prescribed opioids, only four had developed addiction. Now, it's very important to understand what they're looking at and what they're not. They're looking at people in a hospital setting who were prescribed opioids for some period of time. We don't know whether it was one day or three or one opioid. Those details really matter because opioids increase the risk of addiction when they're taken for longer periods of time. The fact that a person would not become addicted to opioid if they are given one hydrocodone pill on one day and another hydrocodone pill on another is not surprising. What would be surprising is if they were treated for 60 days with opioids on a daily basis. And those are the details we don't know. Therefore, the only conclusion that could be drawn from this five-line letter to the editor is, according to medical records, four people became addicted to opioids based on opioids they were provided in the hospital based on some other set of circumstances we don't know. But what happened after that changed history forever? Because drug companies who wanted to promote opioids for expanded use took the numbers reported four addictions, 11,000 patients, as a promotional platform to claim that in a very large study, it's been demonstrated that the risk of developing addiction from opioids is less than 1%. And this five-line letter to the editor was cited over 600 times for the proposition that taking opioids is not really addictive, that the risk of overdose, or worse, I should say, addiction than leading to overdose, is really overblown. I mean, after all, it's less than 1%, only four in 11,000 people. Now, think for a moment about the difference between 
the idea that according to medical records based on facts and circumstances involving treatment, we know nothing about from the letter to the editor. Concluding that because four people became addicted according to their medical records, that means people can be prescribed opioids widely for long periods of time on an outpatient basis and that the risk of developing addiction is less than 1% based on this five-line letter to the editor. That is exactly what happened. That is precisely what drug companies did. Worse, they found physicians, thought leaders, people who were genuine experts in pain management to promote that big misapplication of that study and claim that the risk of addiction from taking opioids is less than 1%. Look at the Porter and Jick paper. Only opioid drug companies could create a drug oversupply and addiction epidemic of this massive size and scope. Foreign cartels don't have a license to sell opioids, nor the ability to send sales representatives with misinformation into doctors and dentist offices, nor to infiltrate medical associations, medical schools, hospital accreditation agencies, or to successfully lobby members of Congress to strip the DEA of the power to stop them. Only Big Pharma could do all those things, and they did. Selling opioids is like selling nitroglycerin. The product is so dangerous that it must be handled with the utmost care. Because if it isn't, it can't just blow up a person. It can blow up a whole community, and it has. Where you live, where I live, neighbor's house, maybe in yours, all over America. One of the things we're going to explore in all of the segments we do this season is whether there is a path to healing and a need for a reckoning. If you or someone you know is struggling with opioids, please visit www.addictioncenter.com to learn more about the available resources in your community. This podcast is produced by Shannon McDees of Revel and Convey and Larry Shivana. The opinions expressed on outside counsel are neither legal nor medical advice. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers, guests, experts, and or host. They do not expressly nor necessarily reflect the opinion of any institution with which I am or ever have been a member and should never be attributed as such. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Outside Council. I'm Jeffrey B. Simon. On the next episode of Outside Council, we'll be talking to whistleblower Carol Panera, a former sales representative for Purdue Pharma. Her job was to promote OxyContin to healthcare providers. Well, more specifically, to get healthcare providers to prescribe OxyContin to as many patients as possible. And what she has to share is absolutely shocking, but completely true.